It was interesting preparing for this this evening in trying to decide what I thought was essential. This is called essential dharma. What actually is essential? It's all essential. Any one piece is essential. So I had to pick which ones I want to talk about. Some of you, I'm sure, have heard of the Dhammapada. Who's heard of the Dhammapada? Few of you. The Dhammapada is Dharma, the same word as Dharma, you know, when we took refuges and the teachings of the Buddha, the way things are, that word. Pada, Pada is path. We get foot, you know, from that word. And, and so uh, it is the most widely translated and published text of the many texts of the recordings of the teachings the Buddha actually gave. And it's a little book, and it's it's pithy little phrases and statements and teachings, and it's been translated, I don't know, hundreds of times, printed many, many, many times. The first two verses of it, so it's the most familiar in the world of what the Buddha taught, the very first two verses are these. He, it begins with a he, in those days, all people were he's apparently, he who thinks and acts with an untrained mind. No, I'm sorry. The first line is, the mind is the forerunner of everything. He who thinks and acts with an untrained mind will um, find unhappiness or struggle or stress, whatever word you want to use, um, following him like the ox cart wheel follows the ox. Second verse is, the mind is the forerunner of all things. He who thinks and acts with a trained mind will find happiness following him all of his life like the shadow. Well, there's a big difference between dragging an ox cart around and having a shadow, which is utterly effortless. So unhappiness is burdensome and hard work, and happiness is completely free of all of that work and light and spontaneous. Coming down to the training of the mind. So the most essential part of meditating and this tradition and the teachings of freedom and awakening are about the mind and training it. So then we have these minds of ours well. I don't know that things have changed too much since the time of the Buddha, except that it's got faster. But for millions of years, as we evolved as a species, um, we were um, basically on survival mode and needing to notice and pay attention to what served us, what fed us, what protected us, and avoid the pitfalls and the hostile tribes or whatever. And succumb when there was a drought and famine and so on and so forth. And then at some point in our evolution several thousand years ago, we, our brain grew dramatically and we developed language and we developed specialized skills and we were able to begin to control our environment to a degree. We learned agriculture, for example, and we could sow food and have enough stored for next year and stave off the famines to some extent and so on. And at that point, we, it, our minds really, really developed and they really became very clever. And in that whole part of our evolution, this recent part of our evolution, we as a species learned 
to exert to a degree dominion over our lives, dominion over nature to some extent. Before that time, we, we were just as vulnerable as all the other creatures. And once we began to plan and scheme, um, we, we have grown this, this whole part of our brain, which we now, of course, take it for granted and believe in so much, but it's where we are endlessly caught up in using that kind of our brain to try and organize our lives, to try and make them be as comfy as possible, as safe as possible, of course, as nice as possible. It's quite understandable. We've got very good at that. We've got so good at it that we believe that that is the only way to go. And when our being so good at trying to control our situation fails, which inevitably it must, when you consider that you can't actually stay young forever, you can't never get ill, you can't keep the people you love to be really nice to you all the time, and so on and so on. There's so much that we can we cannot control the weather that we become frustrated and we try all the harder to get whatever it is we're wanting. And when it's going the way we don't want it to go, we get all caught up in trying to fix that and to prevent that, and don't we? We resist, we struggle, we control, we fret, we complain. Did you notice any fretting today, anybody? <laughs> Even when there's nothing that you can control sitting here, you're just sitting quietly, we're still busily, we're busy. This mind of ours in survival mode is busy trying to make things better for ourselves. And it's not stupid or wrong to do that. It's effective to a degree. What's happened is we've lost the, the uh, understanding of what that degree is. And so we sort of are overdoing it. It's like the mind is, is neurotically busy trying to make us okay. And it doesn't seem to ever say, oh, well, that's just too bad. I mean, we can say that, and we do do that, and we do this, and we all do this. It's very interesting with our hands. I'm always interested in hand gestures and body languages and stuff, and it's such a universal gesture of surrender to something greater than myself. It's a, it's a humble, you know, I, I, you know, I couldn't help it. I, you know, like, wow. Or when some, you know, major, wow, look at that. We open our hands like this. But other than those moments... We don't open our hands like this. We're busy, you know, fiddling and pushing and struggling and etc. So we've learned, and because it's been effective, because we have actually been able to, you know, discover electricity and central heating and, you know, trucks and all the amazing things that we have, it's, it's been really good. It's not that we shouldn't have done it. Um, but we have, yeah, we have lost the humility to see the limits of that behavior. And what happens to all of us is that we, when subject to the stuff that's beyond our able ability to control, we become upset usually, and then we try all kinds of remedies or all kinds of therapies or all kinds of whatevers, and sooner or later, and it's, I think, remarkable when it's sooner, because for majority of people it's later, we realize there has to be another whole approach to, to living to be able to have some ease and well-being when I can't actually control it. 
that's when spiritual life comes into the fore, of course. You know, there's some other dimension beyond my little control. One of the things that this mind does in that whole way of of trying to arrange everything is just it's just the way it's evolved and the way it, and it's had to for survival purposes is it notices specifics. It were very good at noticing specifics. So this was an experiment that I heard a wise teacher very long ago did. He um, while teaching the Dharma, he had a blackboard and with his students he turned and, and he he drew on the blackboard this shape. We have to imagine I've got a blackboard and a chalk. Okay, big square shape. And then he drew in the middle of that big square, he did this. What do you think that is? And then he said to his students, what did I just draw? Don't know if you could see it clearly enough. Bird in a cage. Bird out the window. He said, well, actually, I drew the sky with a bird flying through it. But of course, what we think it was, was the bird, because that's the way the mind goes. It's just every mind, it goes to particulars. It doesn't actually notice that much more of that picture is nothing, it's space, it's sky. But there in there is a little, I made it bigger so you could try and see what I was doing, but that's what we do. And we don't just do it to everything because we'd be overwhelmed, but we particularly do that to things we glom on. I, I use this word glom because it's like I can sort of see the attention just going rump. There is a, a particular little toy thing that one can get. I haven't seen them recently. I should get one from my little granddaughter, but it's a little um, stick with a little sort of hand made of gooey kind of brightly colored modern plastic thing. And when you do this with it, it sort of throws out and then it gloms onto a piece of paper. Do you know that toy? Does anybody know what that is? So you can sort of grab things with it. Well, I think that the mind is kind of like grabbing onto stuff, kind of like that. So I use the word glom because I don't know if they're called glommers, but and just as an aside, I will say to you, that so I, when I first taught that, I, had, I guess I just had found one of those things. And, uh, and there was a young man on the retreat on a retreat, young, young man, first retreat, and um, who didn't say very much during the retreat. He was fairly reticent. I didn't really know how much he was hearing or what, what was going on for him very much. He was shy. Anyway, about six weeks later in the mail, I got, um, I got one of those things in the mail <laughs> with his address. He didn't say anything, but it was like he got that part. <laughs> Anyway, so the mind tends to glom, like your mind's glommed onto the bird, you know, and the, not the big space. We glom onto not everything, but we glom onto the things, the incidents, the words, the objects, the situations, which we really like, and or the ones which we really don't like. And we tend not to bother with the ones in between. And we like to like and we like to dislike. We like drama. We're very, we like stimulus. Have you noticed anybody, have you been getting bored here with no stimulus? <laughs> I know some of you have because we've been talking today. We like to, we, it's hard to be quietly with your breath because it's boring compared to your fantasy world, isn't it? 
you know, we want to think and remember and fight on the inside or whatever it is you've been entertaining yourself doing because we like the drama. You know, when we greet each other or when we look at the screens that we look at, we aren't looking for the ordinary things. We're looking for the highlights, 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 lowlights. And when you greet somebody, you know, you, you want to hear, so what's, you know, what is there newsworthy in your life? You know, how have you been? But we're kind of ready to tell me something exciting. And we don't usually reply, oh, it's been kind of ordinary, you know, recently the weather's been pretty benign and I, you know, I'm feeling relatively comfortable. We don't usually say that. We say, oh, you'll never guess what happened. Right? We kind of, we think that that's a life, that that's what it's about. It's the big deal, right? So that's a tendency we have to glom onto the things that stimulate us. But what happens with us, all of us, is the way we're, we're wired, is when we notice something particularly pleasant, particularly nice, fun, whatever, and we glom onto it. What I mean by that is we, pay, we put all our attention onto it and then we get into it and we think about it and we fantasize about it, we comment about it and we tell its story and then something else, it leads to something else, right? We all do it. And we call that in meditation becoming entangled. And we do it with the pleasant things of our lives and we do it a lot more with the unpleasant and we, you know, what we're doing is, is talking about it to ourselves and describing it, commenting it, and then we're going and we can get quite, quite in there where I really want this, I really want more of this, how can I get this? And we start scheming and designing and we're already planning our next trip to wherever it is so we can have this great experience and so on. Correct? Yeah, and we do exactly the same with the unpleasant things. And we worry about them and we struggle with them and we complain about them and we end up suing people and, you know, having great dramas. And you'll see your mind running amazing dramas as you sit here in the quietly with none of it actually happening. It's all just your mind doing it. But we get very busy and very entangled. So part of the reason we get so entangled is because of the it's because of the degree of pleasant and the degree of unpleasantness of whatever the material that's triggering us and uh, and then the because there's a, a certain degree of emotion feeling feeling high or feeling low or feeling threatened or feeling excited or whatever the feelings are that feeling fuels this mind of ours to get busy and get going and get entangled so the Buddha had a name for this. He called it um, adding the second dart. The first dart is, the, is whatever it is that it pierces my awareness that, that inevitably happens. Something bubbles up from inside me or a sound, something, any, a word, a look, an eyebrow, anything. And um, pops up. And then that's one dart. If it's an unpleasant situation of any kind, it's like, ouch. And then what we do is we like, oh no, this is awful. <gasps> I'm never going to be able to deal. And then we add all these extra layers of pain on top of it with our minds. We can't do anything about what pops up, what comes at us or what comes up inside us. This, we have no control over it. But we do have some choice about whether or not we want to proliferate around it. That's one of the words we use a lot. The Pali word for proliferate is papancha. An onomatopoeic word, I think. Papancha, papapapapapapancha. Adding more and more and more, getting very entangled. It's okay that we do it. 
It's just the way we, we go through our lives. We do more of that with more vigor, the more intense is the feeling of either pleasure or displeasure. That sort of, we get, they get each other going. The feeling gets the thinking going, the thinking gets the feeling going, and, and on we goes. And I know I keep going round and round, but it's sort of like keeping going because it doesn't actually lead anywhere, out of anywhere. We just get in it. And you, you know that or you'll see that very quickly if you don't already realize that. We do that because we really believe that that will help us feel better. We don't do it because we're stupid. We don't do it, you know, we're not actually very smart about it. We don't realize the effect. We just do it because we don't know what else to do. If something's problematic, I better try and figure it out. I better try and get rid of it or something, try and protect myself from feeling it. So this activity, this mental activity is really our helper. This mind is trying to help us, trying to help us be safe or feel good or feel more comfortable, protect us from difficulty. Thank you, thank you so much, little mind. It's on our side. Unfortunately, it is not that effective a lot of the time. So I have a, a friend and colleague who says to her little mind, it's like her little friend beside her, thank you so much, thank you, but we've got it covered. <laughs> Except that for most of us untrained, if we haven't had any men mind training, we haven't got it covered. That's the only thing we have to try and make ourselves okay and make our life work. And it's because of this attitude, this belief, this way we function, that the whole, I think, the, I think that the big mess that we're in in the world is so. It's because we want, and we have taught ourselves to want to consume, and want more things, and want to travel more, and want more experiences, and want, 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 in order to feel okay that we're you know, using so many resources and flying everywhere, how many thousands of people flying every second in the, you know, driving everywhere, shopping, 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 etc. Desperate consumerism. It's sort of sad because it doesn't, if it really worked, if it really worked, then great, but it can only, it can only do so much good. And then we're dissatisfied pretty quickly, even if we get some great new something or other. That's just pretty nice for a while, and then it doesn't last. That feeling, the, the thing we might get, we might keep for a while until it breaks or wears out, which inevitably it will. But the feeling we get of the pleasure of, of getting something gets old pretty fast, and then we need another one, another hit of something. That's how addiction is. It isn't actually the things which we want, it's the feeling of well-being that we want. But we've misplaced that and put it on the things. We've made them the problem or them the solution, we believe. And that's why we're so hard-working at trying to get them. And, uh, and what's so radical about having a spiritual practice at all, and this is the one that I'm familiar with, is it's, it's taking the emphasis off the usual objects of our interest, that we glom and turning it completely in 180 degrees and watching ourselves and how we behave and seeing all this glomming and all this judging and all this spinning and all these darts that we keep adding and mountains we keep making, 
movies we keep running, endless narrative we keep speaking. And we begins to expose the futility and the limit of that whole mode of behavior, which works for basic survival, fine. And we do need to choose and plan and make appointments and follow laws and so on. And it's not that it's wrong to do, but it's the investment in it as being the only way to achieve happiness. That's our error. So when this happens, you have this clever language in our English language. I'm going to give a few examples. When we're really entangled by something, something has triggered us and now we're in this story that we're telling, movie that we're running and so on, caught in something, we use words like overcome, overcome by desire, or um, carried away or transported by emotion. We use that word, transported. And in the grip, you know, when you're in the grip of your anger, for instance, in the grip, overwhelmed by consumed by grief. Anybody else got any of those such phrases where it does it to us? Blindsided. Blindsided. Yeah, or blinded blinded by a flash of something. We are affected. Anyone else? Drowning in sorrow. So we know that we are losing something. We're losing touch of something when we're in the grip of or when we're carried away by or when we say, oh, the devil made me do it. What's not there when we're in the grip of something? What's not there is any space enough to choose anything. Our emotion is carrying us away. It's running our life. We are victims of what our mind is telling us and what it's thinking and what it's then blurting out or making us go and do. We aren't really running ourselves. Our mind is running us in those moments, right? And that's when it's really far down that road. But even partly down that road, our mind is kind of running us. It's a matter of degree, and this is what the Buddha meant when he talked about, you know, when the mind is untrained, we're dragging an ox cart around. Because we're really victims of our mind when it's acting itself out in this way. And it's acting itself out and being triggered to do this because it really, really wants something other than what it has. It wants more or different or better or the next. Just around the next corner will be a better moment. Or it's struggling against something that it doesn't want, it doesn't like, and it's entangled in this negative state. Both of those states aren't happy states. And clearly they're not free. You're not free, independent, and making choices. Those, the situation is, is making the choice. So that's not freedom at all. That's being victimed, victimized. And that's the state we're in a lot, a lot, a lot. So one of the ways the Buddha talked about the point of practicing is freedom. Freedom from being a victim of your mind and your passions and the, the needs and the hungers and the desperations and the struggles and all the resistances against the difficulty. It isn't necessary. Except if you have no trained mind, it is necessary. 
as we are able to train ourselves in meditation, we discover we have some space and we have some part of ourselves that can, in the midst of some situation, I really like this, I really want this thing, can realize, oh, I'm getting really desperate for this thing. That part of the mind that just said that, that realizes that, is the space, is a bit of space where suddenly it's like, do I actually have to have this thing, really? Is that true? Will it make a big difference if I do? Will it be okay if I do? We don't say all that very consciously, but there is some questioning. We call that our conscience, for instance. Sometimes that's one of the ways we use it, right? Or if you're going to do something that suddenly part of you is going like, I don't know this, maybe I shouldn't do this. Maybe I shouldn't say this thing. That's actually going to be, that's not going to be a good idea to say that. Finish this sentence. I think I'll just leave it at that. The part of you that's making that choice is the part that's lost when you're entangled in and perpunching, right? And that's the part that we want to have access to. And we want to have access to by default, not just occasionally when things are calmed down enough and people are being nice enough to us. But in the midst of the times where we're, we're vulnerable, you know, when you're in the midst of the arguments or the dramas going on, which will go on. So there's another, another teaching the Buddha gave to come to these essential pieces, which is so essential and it's really recognizing and it it's all seems so obvious when you say it, but we don't believe it. We know in our head some of this, but we don't get it deeply. One of these things is that there are eight vicissitudes, he called them. Another way it's often said is 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows, which simply means that in our lives, every single one of us, inevitably, because we're on this realm, this plain human existence in this world, we're not in the heavenly realms, wherever they might be, if they exist, we are going to be experiencing pleasure and pain. That's two of the eight. We're going to be experiencing gain and loss. That's another two. We're going to be experiencing praise. People are going to be nice to us, say nice things, and the opposite, blame directly. And then in, in behind our back, or in general terms, we're going to be experiencing fame and ill repute, the opposite. We're going to be criticized. So we're going to be given positive and negative reviews directly, indirectly. We're going to have things come into our lives and go away again, and we're going to have pleasure and pain around all of it. Inevitably, always. And now we know that's true. It's true for every one of us. It's always happened. It will always happen. But deep inside our little survival mind, which is so busy trying to get pleasant things and get rid of other unpleasant things, we don't want to believe that. We want four. Thank you very much. And we think there should be just four. And every time there's one of those other four, there's a problem. Something's gone wrong. Something sh it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be that way. It's supposed to always be four vicissitudes, for me anyway. And it's because we don't actually get it. It's not possible. It's not possible. But we don't want to believe that. We're kidding ourselves. That's a pretty essential realization once we get to realize it. When we realize that it's inevitably going to go up and then it's going to go 
mellowed out, then it's going to go down and up and down and sometimes extreme and sometimes just gently. And then as soon as everything seems fine for a while, boom, down we go again. If we really believe that that was the way it's supposed to be and the, what's the, how, what to expect, we wouldn't be resistant and complaining and whining and blaming. We'd go, well, you never know what's going to come next. So the practice of meditation and the teachings of the Buddha are to help us be able to go, wow, that's pretty surprising. We're not going to not care. We're not going to not like and dislike. We're always going to like the pleasant and dislike the unpleasant. That's absolutely normal. And we still have all these feelings, but we won't go further on and get into the tangle where we have to have it or we have to get rid of it or we're having to now make a big mountain out of it. It just it stops at the the first dart. It's like, oh, this is really painful. This is really sad or whatever it is. It is. We feel things fully and that's all we need to do. We aren't then adding the trying to make it be the way we think it should be playing God behavior. I call it playing God. I think it's, we're sort of arrogant thinking because we've learned this dominion over our circumstances that we think we can have all dominion over all circumstances and then when we can't, we get frustrated. Doesn't it sound ridiculous when you say it like that? <laughs> but that's what we're doing. But we, the thing is, we're doing all of this behavior without realizing that's what we're doing. A lot, a lot of what's going on is going on under the radar, unconscious. And so we, we think things, we respond to things in certain ways, we get triggered by certain situations, we have kind of preferences, we've learned them all through all the various circumstances of life. We're conditioned to like these and, and some of us will have a certain response to one situation and another person will have a different response. We will still be responsive beings, but we won't be carried away by, we won't become in the grip of, we won't be victimized at the mercy of circumstance. We will learn because of this independence from circumstance. It's a blessed relief. It's a, it's. When you really think about it like that, when I describe it like that, I wouldn't want anything else. So here's a little example. This is a story I've told a few times, heard from another Dharma teacher a while ago. Years ago now, I don't know, 15 years ago perhaps? I don't know if you remember, but in the East, and certainly in Eastern Canada, it was really bad. There was an ice storm. And uh, in the winter time, and it was a big drama, and there was power out a lot. And for, for a long time, people were really freezing in their houses, and and you know, all the electrical wires had ice all over them. Chunks of ice were dropping on things. So it was a big deal. And it was towards the end of it, around the time of the troubles in Northern Ireland, where there was still a lot of violence going on. So these are, this is a little story of two separate incidences. There were two housewives in Ireland two Irish, Northern Ireland, and one was a Catholic and one was a Protestant. And they were out getting their groceries one morning and they found themselves with their grocery bags walking home on the same sidewalk in opposite directions. And when they got to each other, it was a narrow piece of sidewalk. Neither of them refused to get off the sidewalk to let the other one pass with her bags. And they stood there staring each other down because of their hostility between these two religions. And, uh, and they just wouldn't budge until people started to notice them and then sort of join in and then say things and then throw comments and eventually a little crowd gathered and rocks started to be hurled and eventually somebody got shot. 
That's, that's called propuncia, the proliferation of their resistance. That's part one. Part two of the story is that in the ice storm in Canada, I kind of like it because I'm both, I'm not Irish, but I am British and I am Canadian both. So um, the Canadians come out on top on this story. So during the ice storm, there were two midwives, uh, excuse me, I was a midwife, I don't know why I said that. There were two housewives going about their business in the ice storm and people were told to stay home because it was dangerous to be out and about. And they were in cars and they had to travel in spite of the, the storm. And one had to go to her um, father who was ill in hospital, just had a heart attack or something. And the other one had to go in her car to her daughter who was in labor. And so they're driving along the same road and they meet each other. But the reason they meet each other in their cars and are stopped is because a tree has fallen across the road. And so they get out and they ex explain their situations to each other and they get into each other's cars and drive off to their various things. <laughs> That's not papancha-ing. You know, so it's like, we have a choice. You know, we can accommodate or we can push and resist. Which would you rather do? So this part of our mind that is able to make a choice, and that is able to say, I don't think it's a good idea for me to continue this conversation, for instance, or maybe I won't go out tonight because blah, blah, blah. That part, that wise part, that sort of conscious part. I already said this last night. Was it last night? It was last night. Already it feels like ages ago, doesn't it? Retreats get this sort of like time disappears. Um, is like, it's like the backup part of our mind. It's like we have this background part, which is quiet. And then we have this front part, which is noisy, which is busy and wanting and planning and commenting and all of that. I kind of see it as though there's two aspects going on at the same time. And the front part, the busy little part, the surviving, schemy part, is way noisier and really is what, gets us caught up, and it's what runs the show a lot. But in the background is this quiet, and uh, Thomas Merton, some of you know Thomas Merton, talked about it as shy. I love that. It's like this shyer part. That's, it's easy with shy people for the noisy part ones to kind of overshadow the shy ones. So this shy but way wiser part is always there in the background. But because we get so preoccupied with the noisy little commentator and all of the planning stuff, we tune out that wisdom part. What we're doing in meditation is accessing that wisdom part. It's always there. We all have it. But it gets ignored. It gets overridden. It gets overshadowed by our preoccupations and concerns. So it's not that these preoccupations and concerns are wrong or a problem. We need to stop them. But we, instead, what we're doing is withdrawing our attention from them and instead replacing it on the part that's wise, this quieter overview, if you like, awareness. One way to describe it is attention is placed on the different incidences, the different comments, the things. That's where we put our attention, the story. And awareness is watching from the background. When awareness is contacted or accessible or we recognize something's there, we call that mindfulness. The Buddha described it as though we're standing on top of a tower and we can see the situation, more of the situation. 
when we haven't got that awareness available to us, we're right close up and involved in whatever the little thing is. And we don't have perspective and we therefore don't have enough space to make a wise choice. We're caught in whatever. It's like we're little kids with our faces squished up against the whatever it is, the window or something like that, instead of seeing, you know, that's not such a good idea. That's a really good idea. That spacious part. We don't have to create that. You're not trying to make yourself into something, new thing. We just want to make space enough and quieten down the drama storytelling enough that it becomes available to us. It's always there. And we want to recognize when it is there. And one of the words we call it, Howie and I both use the same language, and you have to find your own words that work for you, and we all use different kinds of words, but we use present awareness or awareness of presence. Eckhart Tolle calls it now, you know, the power of now, when we're present. Because that awareness factor, that wisdom, only functions when we're present. And that busy little attention that gets caught up is usually not present. We're imagining, we're planning, we're remembering, and so on. So what we're doing all the time in meditating, as well as using the breath or using the steps or using the moving of the body or eating our lunch or whatever it is, the hands as they push the doors open and all of the, the things that we're doing to, to notice rather than be off lost in our fantasy world, which is not in present time. We're not just doing that. We want to include knowing that we know that's what's happening. This awareness, we want to notice that. So it isn't just about breathing. It's about being present knowingly. One of the ways one of the teachers has taught this is to... And it depends on how noisy your commentator is. Some of us, we're not such commentators, and some of us have an ongoing narrative going the whole time, and so we're all slightly different like that. But if the narrative is really accessible to you, you can use passive language and say, um, pushing, if you're leaning against the door, pushing, being known. Breathing, being known. Stepping, being known. Cold on my face, being known. Because you're accessing the knowing part, that awareness part, and that's the part we want to grow. So I want to talk a bit more about that, that wise part, that big mind, or awareness mind, or mindfulness mind, or whatever words, they're all, they all mean the same thing. It's quiet. <laughs> it isn't it, having any kind of comment. That part of us is going like, oh, I see period. It doesn't add opinion, it doesn't have bias, it doesn't have judgment, it doesn't make comments, it just knows. It's, it sees clearly without having to add anything. So it's shh in there. And we need to quieten down all the other busy, oh I need this and I'm worried about that. And then we'll realize, oh yeah, I know this is happening. It's a quietude that's there which is part of the reason why we go into silence in retreat, to help quieten the stimulus down, to be able to help us access it, even though it's weird and not the way we normally live our lives. Um, it's also, when it's functioning, this aspect that knows what's going on and sees what's going on is clear, because it's not 
um, it doesn't have an agenda of trying to get something or trying to get rid of something. It really can see much more clearly. It's got an, an element of it that's caring. It's hard to describe it. There's a heartfulness to that awareness. It isn't just like data collection. It's actually coming, interestingly, I think, this is interesting, from the right hemisphere. It's the right hemisphere of the brain functioning. The left hemisphere of the brain is the commentating, planning, organizing, describing, you know, all the wordy, busy parts. It's actually our left hemisphere functioning really fully. And we do it fantastically and to great effect, sometimes good effect, sometimes not so good. The right hemisphere, on the other hand, is nonverbal. It's intuitive, it's spacious, it's quiet, it's immediate. Different descriptions people have of these hemispheres. It's almost like we're trying to access more of the right hemisphere's function. But there's also, it's also, there's a warmth to it. There's a connection. So when we're able to be quiet and not caught in our stories and dramas and just pay attention to something, I like to, to use the word give attention because it is a kind of gift to be available to notice something. As soon as we pay a little bit of attention, give a little attention to some anything, there's a kind of, oh, that's interesting that we have. And some of you already will have noticed it and after a couple of days in retreat, largely because there's nothing else to stimulate you and distract you and no cell phones to use and so on, you'll start noticing things around. And you'll notice them with eyes that can stay a little longer. And then you'll start being delighted by the simplest little, you know, sometimes it's melting frost or, you know, drops of dew or a spider web here and there. And we start hearing you telling these, oh, this beautiful, and you fall in love with the woods and you fall in love with the deer and all the things which were always there. And you saw them all before, but you didn't have that delight because you didn't pay real attention because you weren't really 100% present when you really pay attention in that full way, not in the opinion story way, you start caring about things. It's natural for us to care. We don't need to create that either. We don't create this awareness. We don't create this care. It's all there. We stop that by our busyness and our, I call it neurosis, the you know scheming and worrying and commenting on all of that activity. We interfere. Caring is there, but it's shy. Awareness is there, but it's shy. It's quiet. Another aspect of this mindfulness that we can tune into, we don't, we're not creating it because it's already natural to it, but we can start realizing it's there. Um, so there's this friendliness, there's this um, seeing clearly, quietness, um, and there's also a, an interest that's in that kind of awareness. It's not just... I see, I see, yeah, I see, we're sort of flat. It's intrigued. It's a kind of wonder in it. And you see it in children. I mean, we're all like that when we're not busy with all of our stuff. There's this sort of open, fresh, available, like, and when they're talking, when kids are little, and if anyone's been around much, you know, three and four-year-olds, they're like, why, why, what's this, why? Oh, what's this, what? They have this hunger of wonder. And they don't want answers. They're not trying to figure anything out. They're not engaging their left hemisphere, getting clever. They don't want to accumulate data. They just are available, and they're full of wonder. I have a three-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter. I get to be the granny in the country who takes her out and shows her things, and she's wide-eyed, oh, 
That attitude, that fresh, open, curious wonder, not curious for information to know to get clever and get something, but just just cause kind of thing, is what grows. Already, when I describe these qualities, awareness that's, that's clear, that's not busy, that's friendly, that's interested, caring, warm, isn't that the description of some of the wisest people you know? That's how they are. This is the manifestation of wisdom. Wisdom, kindness, caring, clarity, freedom from all the neurosis manifest this way. And you don't have to get it, and you don't have to... We all want to be beautiful, clear, loving, wise beings. All we'd have to do is to subside, withdraw our attention from the stuff that's in the way. This busy, scheming, papunching. And we find that, that other, those other beautiful aspects are here. They're here. Shy, waiting sort of for the rest to calm down. Another part of um, this mindfulness, characteristic of mindfulness or attitude of mindfulness that you will also notice, I'm naming it so you recognize it because it's shy, so I want to help you recognize it, is um, it doesn't make anything into me. It isn't telling the story of me. It isn't I, therefore, something, something. It's an impersonal, sort of universal knowing. This is how it is. The little part of the mind goes, oh, and I need one of those. You know, how could, I, how could they say that to me? I wonder what they think about me then, and if I'm walking and looking like I know what I'm doing when I'm walking. That's all about me. That's the little noisy little commenty. The other one is like stepping, stepping, stepping. <laughs> Doesn't shrink into the little s- movies. The movies are all about me. If you, if you really pay attention to the words that are running your movie or the narrative, it's all scripted all around yourself. That's the functioning of that part of the mind. It's taking care of your separate self. The other, this big part of ourselves, is much more the universal part of ourselves, the part where we are part of everything else, where we belong with each other, where we have empathy between each other and we understand each other. It's not preoccupied with self-concern. It feels beautiful. It feels expansive. It feels open. feels sacred, feels peaceful. What happens as we meditate, we keep going back and forth between these two. We get caught in the little, we feel the pressure, we feel the churning, we hear all the words, we've, we recognize all of the how much we, we worry or we judge or we, all the things that we're, that's going on in, in the mind. And then we have these moments when it, we just withdraw permission from getting so caught in that. And here we are just sitting here and we're breathing and we're stepping and we're hearing sounds. And there's a, there's a sense of quietness now and simplicity. And there's nothing to do. We don't have to go anywhere and add anything. We have no wheel spinning of comments. And then we'll get, something will happen and it'll trigger the... So we'll keep noticing these two. And this is what we essentially are asking us to do. Recognize when we're caught, when we're struggling, when we're somehow busy, and when we're not in a moment that is simply just being here with whatever's going on. Boredom, knee pain, quiet. 
I have some um, running out of time. I have three mnemonics, mnemonics for mindfulness, which I've used over the years. The first one I learned years ago from another teacher in the early 90s, and, uh, and it's a mnemonic of RAIN. Some of you may have heard of this. R-A-I-N stands for four words, which you just might find useful as a way to help you access this. Um, recognizing. R stands for recognizing. Oh, this is happening. Oh, this is what's happening. It's just like, oh, right, I'm tired. Oh, right, irritation, that's what's happening. It's kind of recognizing it. The second one is accepting that, allowing that to be. Here it is. I'm not going to resist it or pretend it isn't or try and fix it. It's, it's making space for it. Allowing. I stands for interest, that wonder of the child. What's this about? What's this like? How is this? How do I know this is what's happening? What's it feel like? Curiosity to keep us connected. And N, at the N of RAIN, is not taking it personally. That impersonal, this is just what happens to human minds and hearts, and we're all going through the same thing. Not personal. RAIN. That's one mnemonic. And then as years went by, I played around with a few different other words, and eventually it came out to slow which goes quite nicely with rain, slow rain. Slow, S stands for stay, because we want to, we're trying to be present and stay present. Sustain is a word that Howie's used several times already. You know, con- contact whatsoever in the present moment and sustain attention there. So stay, a sense of just this, I'm going to just stay here. Stay. So sl- slow, S for stay. L is lovingly in that friendly way, because we've got to be kind about it, because it's so easy for us to judge and complain. So, lovingly. O stands for open, which is the same meaning as allow in rain. It's like, this is what's happening, open to what's really going on. This is the way it is, rather than the way I think it should be, or I don't think I should have those four vicissitudes, but just like open, it's going to happen. And W is wonder. Wonder is another version of the interest of rain, because they've got that kind of childish, innocent, open curiosity, wonder. I like the word wonder. Interest is too easy for me to get into thinking about and figuring out and getting too busy with. But wonder is like that open curiosity. And now my latest one, I have a much more recent one in the last year or so, and it's fish. For some reason, they're all rather wet. I for some, Anyway... So fish, and fish isn't spelt properly, but nevertheless, it's F for friendly, which is that same, you know, kind part. I'm liking the word friendly a lot these days. Friendly, and I is interest. That's that same thing, wonder, curiosity. What's this like being human right now? Interest. And then S, there's two S's together. For some reason, I put two S's together in my fish. Softly staying. I've added a softness to it. But it's the same S as in slow. Staying, just here, just this moment, just stay, just right here, sitting in this hall. And then the last, the, the fish part is, is, the, is the shh, S-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. It's shh, no comment, nothing to do, nothing to say, nothing to fix, nothing to change. Friendly interest, softly staying, shh. All of those, all of those 
are characteristics of this right hemisphere or this big awareness, as opposed to the others, which are the busy, getting, planning, judging, worrying, all those things that we do so well that get in the way of real well-being. And then this is another tiny piece that I'll end with that's really essential too. As we see the difference the state that gets all caught up, that gets busy and noisy, and the state of mind that's that awareness, state of mind, quiet, open, clear, patient, loving. We see the difference, we see the difference. We don't just see the difference, we experience the difference, because the Buddha was utterly practical. He said, it's about experiencing it. You can think, and you can hear these words, and they make perfect sense, and it's pretty easy. But if that was all it took, we would all be saints already. It doesn't take thinking, it takes actually experiencing. And so we have to, and that's why it's practice over and over, experience, getting caught up, worrying, planning, whatever it is you do when you get caught up, blaming, blaming, blaming. And then when that's not there, and the quietness of that, and experiencing the quiet, the calm, the relief, the expandedness, the connectedness of this other state, over and over and over and over because this is the point and it's very essential. It's not by thinking this that we can become transformed but by experiencing it because in your experience when you know by thousands and thousands of times the difference between those two states, neither is right or wrong. It's not wrong to be thinking and churning. It's what we've always done for try and help ourselves. Thank you very much. It's this experiencing over and over and over and over and over that our whole system understands, that it goes from theory into, we get integrated, it gets into the heart, it gets into the guts, it gets deep into the bones and the cells. And we know that planning and judging and worrying and trying to get things doesn't actually work that well and the cost is high energetically. And the other is energetically cost absolutely nothing and it's way more effective for well-being. Rather than you have to stop the one and get the other, you simply experience them alternating in your experience over and over and your whole system knows which to grow and which to withdraw from. So you don't have to fix yourself or change anything. You want to just be able to see and experience those two. And in order to do that, you have to be present. And you have to be present ongoingly because it's a pattern you'll see. It isn't just a, a quick slice of seeing something which doesn't see very much. It's actually being able to be stably present and you keep watching this whole activity going on inside yourself. And your system learns it. Your head doesn't learn it. Your whole heart and being learns what is helpful for your well-being and what isn't. You can't not see it. It can't not work. It's brilliant. So that's what I would say is essential. I could talk all night, but I'll refrain. <laughs> mm. Oh, I, I'm going to say one more tiny little thing. I promise I'll just be the last thing. When you're practicing, you're sitting there. Watch closely and you will see
when you're aware and present, you will see that you just weren't. For X number of minutes, you were somewhere, I say, Paris. I always go to Paris. I don't. I just say it. It sounds glamorous and entertaining. But wherever it is you go, you go somewhere. And when you've gone somewhere, the knowing part isn't there and you don't know. And you don't know why you've gone there or when you went there or what took you there because you don't know because awareness is gone. In another moment, you're present and you know that you just weren't. You didn't get yourself here. You didn't get yourself there. You weren't in charge. Your mind sucked you up. It's like sucking you into a TV. There you are, pounding around in there, and suddenly it spits you back out again, and you're here again, and now you know you just weren't here. But you are now. Check that out. You can't help it. You can't make it happen. You can't stop it from happening. You're just going to watch it happen. And in the moment that you're present again, what you'll notice is that all your senses are now functioning. That you're now here, you feel your body, you're aware of other people, you hear sounds, you know if you're tired, what's actually going on is now available to you. And it just wasn't. That's all you have to observe. It's very little. You don't have to do a lot, you don't have to get tired over it either. Just keep watching and you'll be gone and then you'll be here and recognize the fullness of being present including all of this information, <laughs> that's the real information. The other may be way more dramatic and exciting and consume you, but it doesn't have the reality component. It's made up, and it's also costly energetically. You'll see that. There you go. That's all I'll say now. Thank you for listening. I hope any of this can be helpful and support you. Let's just sit quietly for a moment or two. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.